Welcome to Eerie Essex. I'm Bethan Briggs-Miller. And I'm Ailsa Clark. Thank you for joining us on our journey into the stranger side of the county. We will be exploring the folklore, urban legends and supernatural encounters that form part of its rich history. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Eerie Essex. We're in double digits now. Woo! <laughs> That's the, the biggest celebration I'm going to do for the double digits there. So this episode, we are so excited about this one because it I didn't know it was going to be this rich a field of research. And ooh, I'm just so excited to get this um, started. So Bethan, take it away. Oh, we're talking. Sorry, you tell them what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about ghostly monks. Those monks <laughs> up to no good, as we found out. Right. Yep. Yeah. So I'm going to start with Basildon. So the first ghost I'm going to talk about was from 1971. Now there was a man who used to work for a photographic company called Ilford Limited, and one day he was asked to work late for an urgent order. And after he finished, he cycled home along the main road, known locally as the Old Road, past Holy Cross Church. He then, as he was going past, he noticed a man in clerical robes stood in the field opposite, which is just to me creepy anyway. Imagine just looking across at a field and there's this monk. Just a lone man standing in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, then the figure proceeded to walk straight across in front of him, almost knocking him off his bike as he swerved to avoid it. How rude. I know. Well, funny you say that because the following Sunday, the cyclist went to mass at the church in order to have a go at the priest because he thought it was the priest and say, what were you thinking? I almost came off my bike. <laughs> However, the priest assured him it was definitely not him and told him there had been seen a monk crossing the road for many years now and it would cross in the field and then go back to its grave in the churchyard and what's interesting about the grave is it's on the north side of the church in unconsecrated ground known as the devil's acre Uh oh now no one knows why he's buried there but the fact that he's buried in the north side of the church actually is a big thing for anybody i mean that's where people who completed suicide um, unbaptized children. It's just, yeah, it's not where you want to be buried in those days. Also, we're supposed that, well, if they were lucky enough to not be buried at crossroads, supposed witches. Exactly. So, what did this monk get up to? We could only surmise. But the story doesn't end there because the man then went back to work and he told a colleague the tale and she said, that's strange because her and her friend had witnessed the same thing. And she told him that one evening she and a friend had been working late and cycled home the same route. They too saw the same thing. They never went that way again. And in 1973, the curate of the church reported hearing strange noises and sounds coming from the empty church. And upon inspection, saw a monk who vanished into a fine mist. So that's a thick mist. 
No, a fine mist. Not a chunky mist. A fine mist. <laughs> but Basildon and likes its monks. I mean, James from the Basildon History Society. Thank you, James, for sending us all this information. It is amazing. I know you've been waiting for us to talk about it, and we knew we wanted to wait for the monk one because, as you know, there's a lot of monks in Basildon. So in 1964, on Church Lane, there was often seen a figure between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., the Red Monk. <laughs> and Bernard Loy, the reverend at the time, heard footsteps on the porch and received reports that the clink of spades had been heard in the churchyard. Upon inspection, they found nothing, but years later, it was claimed that the apparition had been faked with a projector and fog and the monk that people saw was fabricated. Well, that's interesting. Mm. Something I found, I, I got quite into looking up the sort of histories and orders of monks. That, I thought you said something I've been licking up. Yes, I, I don't really want to be licking them. Um, so the monks have all different colours of robes. We mostly know the brown habit, but the red habit is actually from a Carthusian order. Oh, and the black, the black robes are from a Cistercian order, aren't they? There's different uh, Cistercian's meant to be white, I think. That's it. Yeah, Benedictines are black. Yeah. Oh, we're geeks. <laughs> <laughs> Nerds, I think. Nerds. The, the research on this episode really just took over. It was so good. <laughs> yeah, we know a lot about monks. And one last little basil one. This is from James again. So St. Michael's on Pitsy Mount, there was rumoured to be haunted by a monk that had hanged himself and if you run backwards around the church three times you might catch a glimpse now oh what is it with churches are running around them like a medieval form of pe <laughs> but yeah so that's my mini introduction i'm saving my epic monk story for later so excited about that one you've literally been telling me like little snippets of this since we even formed the idea of doing eerie essex so <laughs> But um, you'll go. Yes. Okay. So you'll remember in, I believe it was episode one, we posed the question, why are ghost monks not seen as particularly good things? And I think I may have answered that in this story. That's Jack, so, not a monk. <laughs> sorry, we could, uh, I can see Bethan's husband moving around in the background blur that we both are now using on our cameras. <laughs> So he just looked like this strange figure walking behind me. Yeah, what robes are pink robes? What order is that? <laughs> Goodness knows, but he's supposed to be ordering a takeaway, so Get on he's, allowed, takeaway. he's allowed to interrupt. <laughs> I want my chicken satay skewers. So um, for this story, I had to really dig into the, into the history of everything around the dissolution of the Catholic Church. So Henry VIII was famous for a great many things, not all mm -hmm. of them particularly noble. His rotund frame and many wives and a nasty habit of chopping off their heads and or divorcing them when a new victim, <clears throat> I mean wife, caught his uh -huh. eye, are probably the ones that everybody remembers best from their school days. Say it with me. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. One of the lasting impacts Henry made on the landscape of Britain and its folklore came with the fracturing from the Catholic Church and declaring himself the head of the Church of England, leading to the dissolution of the monasteries. So what happened to all these monks and nuns when Henry forced them out of their monastic lives? Well, many of them were sent back to their families, 
and higher members of the clergy were sometimes pensioned off. But a few yeah, of I've them... never thought about this. Yeah, it's something that I, it only occurred to me to look at um, when I was researching. <laughs> However, a few of them stayed on and fought the turning tide, met with sticky ends. Notably, um, for Essex, the abbot of Colchester was hung on his own lands in the Abbey's gallows in Greenstead, Colchester. Nice. If you can imagine what an upturned world that must have seemed to the general population at the time, the church that they had always known was dissolved and re- replaced by something new. And men who had been in, uh, held in high holy places in society were rioting and being executed. Is it any wonder then that we have tales of ghostly monks soon following on from these uh, horrific circumstances? The dissolution. Sorry, my nice was a sarcastic nice. You got that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The dissolution also saw the destruction of church property and the breaking up of church-owned lands. There are many of these ruins still standing, and they definitely hold a sort of dark glamour you'd expect fitting for a chilling tale. The Abbey of Coggeshall was one of these places after the dissolution. The Abbey was founded by King Stephen and Queen Matilda in 1137, uh, or sometime between 1137 and 1142. It was first an order of Sauvignac monks, but later became, and I keep on wanting to say this wrong because it really just tricks my brain, uh, Cistercian when the Sauvignac order was absorbed. And I keep on wanting to call it Cisternian. I, um, I went, when I went to university, I was taught by the leading expert in Cistercian monks, Janet. Oh, hell, I can't remember. <laughs> Janet? Who the Janet! F- Janet! <laughs> I just knew her as Janet. Anyway, she was Damn a- it, Janet. Damn it, Janet. She was bloody awesome she was. Anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> Before the dissolution, one ghostly tale had already been recorded at the Abbey. The story was recounted by Ralph, the sixth abbot of Coggeshall in his Chronicle of England, but it predates his Burton. time. Burton, sorry. <laughs> Janet Burton, carry on. <laughs> Put down that beer, Bethan. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long weekend. But this story predates his time and comes from the records of his predecessor, Peter the Fourth, Abbot of Coggeshall, who was uh, around 1166 to 94. So story goes, a lay brother called Robert, who had care of the guests, entered the guest hall as usual an hour before the time of reflection and there found several persons dressed as Templars. He conversed with them and reported their arrival to the Abbot. But when the brother returned to the hall, he could not find the guests whom he had left there just a little while beforehand. He went into the inner chambers and into the other lodgings, but found no one there at all. And soon he left and went out through the court, running hither and thither, hither and thither, (laughs) (laughs) asking all those he met where these men could be. One stated that he saw the men going towards the church, but then they had hastened to go towards the cemetery. When this had been told to him, he quickly directed a messenger to go there. The messenger found no one. And when the doorkeepers were asked about such uh, a group of guests, they stated that they had seen no such men using the door to go either inside or outside. So who were these men? How had they arrived or departed? It remains a mystery. I do love a good Templar story. So um, for those who don't know, the Knights Templar are an order of 12th century military monks whose uh, stated purpose was to protect travellers to the Holy Land. And they had they they didn't have a lot of uh, estates in 
rural England, but they did have one quite close to Coggeshall, so they wouldn't have been an, a completely uncommon sight at that point. But for them to enter the abbey and then completely disappear is, is something else altogether. Mm. Another mystery that occurs in the records of the abbey are the references made to several murders. There was one in 1175, then 1182, and then again in 1187. There are descriptions of monks being fined or punished for these murders, but no indication of who was murdered or why. Ralph of Coggeshall, who was also an early English chronicler, as well as an abbot and a collector of folklore and legend himself, certainly has nothing to say on the matter. The whole affair seems to have been swept under the rug, apart from the recorded punishments. Relations between the town and the abbey were also subject to much tension. Records revealed monarchs giving privileges and powers to the abbey. Reigning monarchs did take payments from the abbey in the form of money or wool, or in the case of King John stealing 22 horses from the abbey nave. King John, by the way, very unpopular with our Ralph and the rest of the country. Um, But on the night he died, good old Ralph wrote in his chronicle about terrible storms and visitations of supernatural apparitions in the town of Coggleshall, linking the death of the monarch to the agitation of evil forces. Mm. The chronicle explains that sometime between the 18th and 19th of October in 1216, in the middle of the night, there was such a shattering of wind and a storm that the townspeople feared that their houses were full. Many spoke of horrific and supernatural apparitions that came to them. Uh, by implication, at least, they were terrifying, but the chronicler would not say what they were. No matter how bad the relations between the monarchy and the clergy were, in return for the tributes, the monarch uh, gave the abbey and the abbot as a whole a host of privileges, which increased its influence over the town and created a power str- struggle with the abbey as the aggressor. The abbey began fencing itself in and even diverted the local river to drive the water to the mill they had newly erected. And at one point, the local vicar was locked up in Colchester Castle for stealing fish from the abbot's pond. (laughs) I know, it's funny to imagine. Um, The final straw came when a chapel was built close to the local church, which directly challenged it. But in 1223, an agreement was found between the town and the abbey that relieved some of the animosity between them. Tensions did resurface throughout the 13th century, and it was a sign of how unpopular the abbey still was with the town that, despite any previous agreements reached, when the Peasants' Revolt took place in 1381, some of the insurgents entered the abbey and carried away goods, charters, writings, and other monuments. I didn't know much about the Peasants' Revolt before this, and I'm not going to go into massive detail now since we haven't even gotten to the ghosts yet. (laughs) But I want to go through some of the reason behind it, because, well, History does like to repeat itself. Mm. The Peasants' Revolt was also called Tyler Wat, uh, Wat Tyler's Rebellion or the Great Rising and was a major uprising across large parts of England in 1381. The revolt had various causes, including soci- the socioeconomic and political tensions generated by the Black Death in the 1340s, high taxes resulting from conflict with France and instability in the leadership in London final trigger for the revolt was an attempt by a royal officer to collect poll tax in Essex. Uh, a wide spectrum of rural society, including many local artisans, village officials, rose up in protest, burning court records and opening the local jails. The rebels sought a reduction in taxation, the end of serfdom and the removal of King Richard II's senior officials and law courts. 
does some of this sound familiar? Mm. <laughs> Not giving anyone ideas, but I am. There we go. <laughs> After the ransacking of the Abbey during the uh, the Peasants' Revolt and the ravaging of the Black Death, and including other issues with the system of monastic governance at the time, the Abbey became reportedly greatly impoverished. More dis- uh, disrepute came down on the Abbey when, in 1535, Thomas. Hang on, sorry, I always want to call him Thomas of uh, Thomas Ford, but he's Thomas Abbott of Ford, was commissioned to conduct visitations to Cockershaw and other, I'm not going to say it, I can't, I can't even remember how to say it. I really want to say Cistercian. Cistercian. Cistercian houses in 1535. Visitations were a regular occurrence for monastic settings, and they were entirely designed to root out any bad behaviour and punish those found engaging in immorality that could cause dis repute to the Catholic Church. These visitations ramped up considerably in the lead up to the dissolution for obvious reasons. The sort of thing these visitations would report ranged from monks not being dressed correctly or with an inadequate tonsures. Abbots, monks, bishops, even nuns engaging in uh, were recorded as engaging in behaviour you'd expect of a Tory politician. There was drinking, gambling, visiting prostitutes, several nuns got pregnant these are actually still some of the milder offences. This particular visitation seems to have caused some consternation for Thomas, as another visitation took place not long afterwards, this time by a crony of Thomas Cromwell, who reported the following damning list of accusations by monks against their own abbot, William Love. So this is a list that I've taken from a uh, historical record. Um, and I'll read it out now, but I'm going to have a little explanation of what some of these mean afterwards. (laughs) So knowing that he should be visited, he counselled the brethren not to be known of a certain plate that was in the house, lest the king might, uh, that the king might not have it. Expecting that the king would have the lands of the house, he let many of them under their value. He neglected to say a collect at high mass for the king and queen, though the king is Hang on, this is because this is recorded as a uh, confession from someone. It's in the first person some of the time. Though the king is our founder and didn't say a prayer for uh, Henry and Anne Boleyn. Uh, He read a certain book of prophecy um, amongst us, his brethren containing words such as Noas Papa Irit a Dio Electus. I had to get my brother to tell me how to pronounce that. (laughs) Uh, the translation uh, being that the new pope will be elected by God. He practiced immorality. He used divination for unlawful means to know of things to come by means of a key and a book and a man's name. Other offenses include that he uh, obtained the office by simony, uh, saying that it cost him 300 marks. Uh, and then he also pretends that the house also owes him 300 marks. Uh, and the monk says though the hospitality was never so ill-kept. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last it's like one, a medieval um, TripAdvisor oh, review. Down, yeah. <laughs> and the last one uh, of this particular monk is that he is an ill husband of our commonwealth, which is basically saying that he uh, sold off all their products cheap and that he uh, sort of did them dirty there. Mm. If you're finding that that list is a bit difficult to decipher, here's a brilliant breakdown of what that means from Francis Young in his article, The Dissolution of the Monasteries and the 
democracy. I gave myself so many big words yeah, in this. You one. have. You've not been Dem- kind <laughs> to yourself. <laughs> Democratization of magic in post-Reformation England. Well done. I got there. Identifying the involvement of monks and friars in superstitious activities seems to have been part of the agenda for the commissioners deputed (laughs) by the Lord Privy Seal, Thomas Cromwell, uh, to dissolve the religious houses between 1536 and 1540. In 1536, an informant named Richard Branktree, which I'm guessing is like a corruption of Braintree. Yeah. Um, accused William Love, the Cistercian abbot of Coggeshall in Essex, of reading anti-royal prophecies. Branktree also claimed to know from testimony given by John Samford, a previous abbot, that Nicholas Crane, then a servant, and Love had given a drink to a young woman to cause a miscarriage that Mm. she nearly died of. And the abbot had made preparations to bury her in the wood if she did. Uh, the administration of this potion is uh, to cause an abortion was a instance of veni victim, occult poisoning, a practice closely linked with harmful magic. Branktree also alleged that Abbot Love did unlawfully use one Robert Godswill, then young and now a monk there, and claimed that the abbot used magic to find lost objects. Um, so when he said he used uh Robert Goswell, what he means is that he engaged in a uh, sexual relationship with this young man. Oh, I'm glad you explained that. I would never have got that. Yeah. Um, and this isn't uncommon uh, as accusations of uh, sodomy were often linked with magic. And in the case of Lord Hungerford, he was, execu- he was executed for treason and buggery. Oh. Yeah. Um, so to give some context for the divination accusation as well, we have another example of the practice in 1440 with the Augustine abbot of Leicester, William Sainton. Sorry. <laughs> uh, he was accused of using the fingernail of a young boy to divine the future. What does he do with the fingernail? I don't know. <laughs> it's Is he still really... attached to the boy? I, 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 I don't know. I don't. I don't know whether they they took it by force or whether it was given freely or who that young boy was or what happened to him. We haven't got time in the podcast, to and we haven't it. got time in the podcast. It is really worth reading the rest of this article. It goes into a lot of detail about how prior to the dissolution, magical study and even practice was really the purview of the monastic centres at this time in British history, and the, how the dissolution served as a catalyst for the dispersal of magical texts throughout England. Many of the brethren who returned home actually used the knowledge they gained in their previous lives to make a living as service magicians. And what we're talking about here isn't the kind of neat magical practice by later sorcerers like Dee. This is what was known as necromancy. In this period, rather than being the practice of summoning the dead, necromancy was a form of magic for summoning demons. The summoner was said to control the demons and force it to do their bidding. And this was used numerous times whilst the monasteries and the priories were still active. Mm. Um, but after the dissolution, these ex-monks would summer a sprite or a demon for any price to carry out the will of the person paying the service. So they retrained? Well, they were already trained. They just oh. took payment for it. Fair play. 
So the charges were dismissed against Love when the Earl of Essex and the Earl of Oxford, both patrons of the Abbey, became involved and wrote to Thomas Cromwell, basically going, oh, he's a simpleton. He doesn't really, you know, he wouldn't have done any of this. He's too stupid. But so Love evaded execution, which with these kind of charges, most people didn't. He was, however, however, relieved of his post. The Abbey didn't last much longer after that. It had one more abbot lasting less than half a decade before the Abbey was dissolved. The monks were sent back to their families and many of the Abbey's buildings were destroyed to prevent the monks from reforming the order. In 1538, when the Abbot Moore handed over his house to the crown, it was reputedly in financial ruin. So a number of the original buildings from the Abbey still exist in Coggeshall. The abbot's lodging survives, as does the guest house and St Nicholas's church, which was a chapel um, for guests coming into the abbey. It was placed within their sort of gatehouse, also Grange Barn. And uh, the people who currently own most of the abbey uh, sort of central lands are Roger and Jill Hadley. They've lived there for about 18 years and have been restoring some of the buildings um, and they have seemed to have encountered some of these ghostly monks. Ooh, tell so me Roger said that uh, his wife had seen a monk in a brown habit just outside the gate. Um, and our gardener says she saw a monk sitting on the bench. So he was quite straightforward with it. He didn't really give a lot of detail about it. Um, he does think that it's a nice atmosphere at the Abbey and that it's very friendly and nothing sinister is there. Hmm. However, there are there is an older tale of a pallid, wrinkly old monk with a very sorrowful expression who walks silently around the abbey with a lit taper um, before leaving and making their way across the old lanes towards Blackwater River. But that isn't the only place in Coggeshall where you see monks. Another spot in Coggeshall where spectral monks have been frequently reported is the old rectory at, uh, for Mark's Hall, which is called Cradle House. It's been described by its previous residents as a rather mysterious place. And there was a discovery of a priest hole in the chimney. Rita Humphreys, an ex-resident of the house, said, I used to live there in 1970 um, and it was lovely in the summer, but she also found it very creepy. She says, I'm sure it was haunted as I always heard footsteps on the stairs and walking into the bedrooms. The house is said to have been a haven for monks who held meetings in secret rooms within the building. The building was reformed into two cottages at one point, but at the time of the Abbey, it was one household and already known to have a secret staircase. What were these secret meetings about? We'll never know Mm. for certain, but we can certainly speculate. Possibly they were grumbling about Abbot Love or the imminent closure of the Abbey maybe the animosity of the town towards them. But there is a heavy hint that these meetings were uh, to do with occult practices. Since the monks, the ghostly monks, I should say, are now spotted quite frequently in the gardens of Cradle House, having a little dance before returning to the Abbey. Oh, bless. So I have one last story of ghostly monks uh, from Coggeshall, and it comes from my own sister-in-law. Your face, Bethan, was brilliant. So her father was a church warden at St. Peter ad Vin... I'm going to say this wrong. Vincula? Mm. I always want to call it vinicula, like the vehicle. <laughs> Just say it with gusto and people will think, oh, I've been saying it wrong. Elsa's <laughs> saying it right. Um, so this into, translates into St. Peter in Chains. 
So he was uh, a warden many years ago, and uh, the church, this church in Coggeshall, is very grand for a town of its size. It was actually once uh, under consideration for becoming a cathedral, but it is a remnant from its past as a wealthy centre for production of wool, lace, and velvet. One night around 9 p.m., she accompanied her dad as he readied the church for the next day's service. She was quite young at the time and she was running up and down the pews playing games whilst her father worked in one of the chapels. Suddenly she saw somebody moving into the vestry and decided to follow them. But when she got a better look, she realised it was somebody dressed in a monk's robes. She knew no one else was in the church just then. It was only her and her dad. So she assumed it was her dad in these robes, even though he had never dressed like this whilst working for the church. So she followed this person into the vestry and found that no one was there. But to her, it looked very much like a monk. Hmm. So here we have it. Coggeshall's ghostly monks and their past misdeeds. Apart from the Hadley's more recent sightings, most of the story seems to be based in folklore and handed down over generations. But the root of the ghost sightings is one of the most important events in England's history, namely the Reformation. Mm. I I promised you a big reveal in that. And the reveal is that the reason why monks get a bad rap is partly to do with the fact that they, uh, after the Reformation, everything to do with the sort of monastic order, the Catholicism was uh, really demonised by the Protestant church. Right. And the other reason is that the magical practice that was being conducted and the fact that these ex-monks then went on to practice in the local communities. So um, the magical practice being uh, taking place in these local communities by these ex-monks, which even when they were in the monasteries was looked down upon, but it seems to have been something of an underground practice for these monks to do. That leads really nicely into my story, actually. Oh, the monks also engaged in murdering, whoring, drinking and gambling. So, you know, maybe that is also why they're seen as bad. Yeah, yeah. I think I did a paper once for my um, degree and it was on the, the monks of Margam. And they, they, they got in with the smugglers, you know, the, the granges near the coast. They used to help hide the pirates and they had a whale of a time. I mean, monks behaving badly is... Monks uh, behaving... Oh, there you go. Basically, the theme of the episode, isn't it? Could it be the title? We haven't decided yet. We're going to go with Hey, Hey, It's the Monkeys. Yeah, I do like that. But I think we should call it Hey, Hey, It's the Monkeys. We'll we'll probably come back to monks. They're a bad bunch and they're everywhere. Um, They're just some of the... Because it's medieval history, some of the research I was finding is brilliant. Specifically, this um, Dr. Francis Young has written so much on it, um, it was really useful, Mm. especially, I mean, I had no idea that that was, the practice of magic was sort of controlled by the Catholic Church at that time. Yeah, pretty much. Well, so this is the one I've been waiting for, Ethan. Well, I found this story because I'm collecting um, Wesley H. Down's um, Essex collection of haunted stories. I've got this one here. It's the terrible treasure halt story. Now you may recognize the name because it was on a very early episode of Most Haunted, but they didn't dig into it much. They just 
skim the surface and that research building. isn't ever particularly um thorough <laughs> <laughs> well it, it, there's a lot of uh the cameras over vet fielding's nose and running off into the bushes so i mean the research might be thorough but they're not using it as they should do in the episode i don't think they could beyond the if if it was shown before the watershed because and i know i've done this before but this time in particular i'm giving a warning it is grim it is horrific when i get to the really horrific bit bit i'll warn you and you may want to skip ahead 5 minutes because it's ugh. We'll, we'll have a little klaxon at that point, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Wesley came by this information after a mysterious phone call from a woman who said that she understood Wesley was interested in the occult and she had been requested to give him a parcel. This parcel had been left to her by an aunt as he, quotation marks, would know what to do with the contents. Inside, he found faded sheets of paper covered with pencil writings, drawings, scraps of history, um, research someone else had done, and the story of Treasure Holt unfolded. And this is the story. So Treasure Holt is a small farm between Great Holland and uh, Clacton-on-Sea. So it's not far from here, Elsa, so I think we could potentially go, because it is actually now a really nice garden (laughs) centre. They do afternoon tea. so. He'll get plants from there and then uh, they'll grow all strange and weird and probably turn into triffids and kill us. Yes, let's go. <laughs> so formerly known as Pearl's Farm, when I looked in all the old um, OS maps, um, it used to be quite a lot bigger, but it's um, there was a big fire at one point and it's now just a portion of the um, main house and stables. But people have always feared this place and... Those who grew up around the area always know that they were told as children, never go near Treasure Holt, never go down that lane. The devil is down there. And in the 1920s, the Society for Psychical Research actually investigated, but I couldn't find anything on that. I even um, asked CJ, um, who helped us with the Rhodes episode, um, because he is a member of that and has access to the records. And between us, we both looked, we couldn't find anything, which leads us to believe that perhaps they used a pseudonym or a fake name for the place so that it couldn't be attached to it. Mm. It started out life as an old inn and it was a favourite haunt of smugglers due to the isolated location. And it was run by a husband and wife who were reputed to be truly evil. And the inn was so notorious that it attracted thieves and villains from all over the country. And it was also known as a centre of witchcraft and black magic. Well, this relates back into my story, doesn't it? I was just, yeah, yeah. It, I'm glad you told yours first because I think it, it sets the scene nicely for this. <laughs> and people would travel miles to attend the rituals that were held on the grounds of this inn and they brewed exceptionally potent drinks. Have you heard of Geneva Gin? Maybe. If I've heard of it and I've drunk it, I probably don't remember it, remember it if it's so potent. Well, it's, sorry if you, I'm really sorry, listeners, if you hear the sound of pages turning. My laptop is on its last legs and I cannot read the screen without getting a migraine now. So I've had to write all mine down. So think of it as ambiance. <laughs> pages turning. It's a little bit of AM- ASMR for you. ASMR for you. So Geneva is a distilled malted spirit, um, but it's like an unaged whiskey and that's been infused with herbs and spices. So it's quite potent. Sounds tasty. It does sound tasty, doesn't it? You can buy it. 
They still make it. I found some on Amazon. Shall I get some? Um, maybe. <laughs> I'm just yes. trying to think. <laughs> When's I'm not time? a gin fan, but I'll do it to research for our listeners. I don't react very well to gin. No, this could be, this could be interesting. <laughs> this could be horrific. <laughs> There's something about this story I particularly like. Can you guess what it is? There's a tunnel. There's a tunnel. Beth and I forgot to tell you, there was a tunnel under the Coggeshall Abbey going along the A12, apparently. Why didn't you tell me that? Do you know, I had it in my notes at the end. Uh, like in my notes, it literally says, oh, and by the way, Bethan, it reportedly has a tunnel. Thank God and for I that. <laughs> absolutely forgot to read that part. <laughs> the most important part. Well, this tunnel um, led under the floorboards of the stables to the back of the inn and then went from there to the woods and the nearby cemetery. So it was quite a substantial little tunnel. And rumours were rife of the dark, dastardly dealings that went down there. But it also attracted wealthy merchants because it was a good place to stop en route to the coast. Skip past Charlie's drawing because he took the book off me and did that. Oh, that is creepy. Yes, isn't it? Look. What on earth? That is... um. So I put it on Instagram. On, they're going to have to put that on Instagram. He was obviously influenced by demonic powers when he me. did that. These merchants, that they carried large sums of money and wouldn't have told anyone where they were going or where they were journeying. So they'd arrive at this inn and nobody would have known they'd have been there. So they were very unsafe. They would be greeted by the landlord and his wife and they would be given this strong drink and a hearty meal on the house. They would be really made to feel welcome. And then once they had got quite fuzzled, they would be led upstairs to a very nice bedroom and they'd be um, in a very comfy bed and left with another drink, more Geneva, and they would pass out in this stupor. I think I know where this is going. Yeah, you do. You remember the most haunted episode, do you? No, I never saw it, but I uh, I know about H.H. Holmes. Well, this actually happened in an inn in Wales as well, in Candleton. So if ever I do a Welsh podcast, which I'm thinking of doing, <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. Um, so after being plied with these drinks and fallen, hadn't fallen asleep, what the last drink would have been laced with something to make sure they stayed asleep till morning. When they'd been asleep a while, the landlord and his wife would search through their clothes and bags for money. And they'd only take just enough that the guests would think they'd overspent in their drunken state and perhaps bought the services of the landlady. What kind of services? You know what services. <laughs> yeah, but for our for our listeners. <laughs> Rumpy pumpy. <laughs> and that was actually the best thing that could have happened to them because if they woke up in the night and saw them going through their things, the landlord would hit them over the head with a club, sometimes most of the time killing them. The floor of the bedroom had under the mat a trap door and downstairs another trap door directly beneath that opened to a deep well. That is exactly like H.H. Holmes. That's mm-hmm. what he did. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's also a Jonathan Creek episode. And the wife would push the body through the trap door. And today the trap door is still there and a concrete slab over the well. And one time the well was exposed and drained and cleaned out and the remains of a dozen human bones, saws, oh. pistols, all sorts came out and it stank oh apparently. In 1928, part of the floor in one of the rooms was replaced and a human skeleton was found with buckles, clay pipes, coins, all covered in lime. So to try, they, the amount of bodies they put down there, they would cover it with lime afterwards to try and hide the smell. But there's always been stories of a foul smell emanating from there. 
And a lot of people think it's the well that's just backed up with bodies. Oh my God. So gross. So glad I haven't eaten dinner yet. This isn't the bad bit, by the way. Oh God. (laughs) I haven't even got to the monk. I'm just setting the scene here. This is the place where Simon the monk came. Oh my goodness. So, uh, I mean, this place is immense. It's little, it's like a little pivot of history. Loads of things happened around it. And this was the time of the civil war between Cavaliers and Roundheads, King Charles I. And the king and his followers found themselves in Essex and thought the inn was well suited to their purpose. The king did not know the reputation of the place, or did he? Who knows? And after a few days, word got around the king was there and a monk visited from the monastery six miles away. I think that's... I've looked at maps and I think it actually might be St. Osith because St. Othis... It's really hard to say that about a lisp. St. Osith (laughs) Priory was upgraded to a monastery. Oh, right. So I thought it was a priory for nuns. Mm. But then it became around oh, this time. Because, you know, men. Upgraded. An upgrade. I know, I know. I know that really made me <laughs> like, oh, God. Yeah, so they were there. And I think that's where maybe Simon comes from. So, you know, there's a nice little link there to St. Osip. And he was sent by the prior to contact the king and pass on vital information. Apparently, the rebels were nearby and they were trying to save the king. So the king received Simon, invited him to share a meal with him and his advisors. Simon's information was that Cromwell's commanders had heard the king was at the inn and they were planning a surprise visit. After the king had left, Simon decided to stay and talk to the innkeeper and his wife and persuade them to mend their ways. So he was on a roll, wasn't he? Or was he? Yeah, my my for those uh, listening, because the only person who can see me is Bethan, I had a look of absolute... I'm trying to think what the, the, what the word is. Uh, suspicion there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, your spidey senses are going. He shared some wine with them, but not being used to such drink, he soon succumbed and went to bed. He was very hungover the next day, and the landlady <laughs> told him he was not fit to travel and should stay a few days. He readily agreed, seeing it as an opportunity to further encourage them to mend their way, so he was still trying. When he eventually came downstairs, the couple greeted him, and he refused food or drink except to ask for some water. At this point, the wife said, I have a remedy, you know, an old herbal remedy. But she did not tell him it contained a generous measure of strong Geneva. He was told to hold his breath and drink it in one go. And after a few more, he felt quite confident. (laughs) He started to urge them to think about their future before it was too late. And they argued their reputation was greatly exaggerated. And to prove it, they invited him to attend one of their meetings. And he accepted the challenge. (laughs) This just seems like a terrible idea. Terrible idea. So the next meeting of the devil worshippers was following week. How handy. And Simon spent that time being plied with drinks and indoctrinated into their ways. And when the time came for the Satanists to gather, Simon was at their mercy. Instead of Simon converting them, he was turned instead. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yep. They gathered around a fire and continued to ply him with drink, chanting all the time. And caught up in the excitement, he climbed upon a fallen tree trunk and cried, I am forsaking my church, my God, my faith, and all that I previously stood for. and wish to become one of you, a disciple of the devil, to practice evil, worship evil, and spread. And evil. spread what? Evil. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a dramatic pause. <laughs> If you do a dramatic pause on the word spread, 
Yeah, it's what did your imaginations to? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> he well and truly threw his lot in with them. And hang on, I need to check. I, I've given myself a warning here of when I'm getting up to the bad bit. It's not the bad bit yet. This is nothing. During an orgy, he boasted of all the wealth and gold at the monastery where he came from, and he spoke of how easy it would be to steal, as he had the keys and knowledge of the layout. He's having a lot of conversation during an orgy. I know. <laughs> I say. <laughs> oh, dear. Where was he? <laughs> With the encouragement of the innkeepers and a man called de Corsi, a smuggler who frequented the inn, they planned to steal as much as they could. Simon became the leader of the gang, and plans were made. So it was six miles to the monastery, and they made off and noticed from the monastery, actually with loads and baskets of treasure. But it was so heavy and so far that they hid it on the edge of the forest and returned the next day to take the goods and hide them in the tunnel, in the stables. Dun, 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 dun. They went several more times to rob the church and the church nearby, as well as the abbey, and hid that in the tunnels. But it's weird that still no alarm had been raised at this point. I mean, the church is rich. Yeah, maybe they just didn't notice. I think that's a thing, yeah. So this really like made them quite bold, as I'm sure you can imagine. And they decided to rob a church 10 miles away. A little bit further this time. Again, they were successful, but they had been watched by Matthew. Matthew worked at the inn doing odd jobs and he slept in the hayloft of the stables and saw where they hid the stolen goods. He waited till everyone had gone and snuck into the tunnel. He took small amounts in a few trips, including a box of guineas, which was amongst the treasure, and he saw this as his reward for saving the monastery's gold. So he was planning to give everything back. He was going to keep the box of guineas to himself. Yeah, right. <laughs> we believe but, you, Matthew. Yeah. They hid it in a trapdoor beside the fireplace and hid it behind some brandy kegs. So underneath the fireplace, there was a place where they would keep probably smuggled brandy. However, later that day, a mob descended on the inn to avenge the robberies and recover the gold. Matthew was the only one there at the time. And after ransacking the place and finding nothing, they chased him, throwing stones. One hit his head, knocking him to the floor, and they proceeded to kick and beat him to death. So during this time of thieving and hoarding gold, Simon was mostly in a state of drunkenness with his morals sinking lower every day, and he became the worst of the bunch. Now, here you go. Can you see I've written? Grim, grim. Ah, this is the warning. So this next bit is actually pretty nasty. So if you don't want to hear, if you, yeah, if you don't want to hear anything particularly gory involving children and babies, I'd skip ahead about five minutes. Yeah. A little klaxon here. I was going to say we should put it in as a sound effect. But oh, yeah, I don't have to do it. Make your, <laughs> you want to make your own sound effects, Beth, and you go ahead. I'll find an awesome one. Maybe a dun-dun-dun. <laughs> so Simon was constantly looking for new ways to serve the devil, even sacrificing young babies and children at dawn on a sacrificial altar. Quote, piercing them with a knife and tearing them asunder. Ew. Whilst he did this, the others danced around, chanting in a frenzy. And unfortunately, a man witnessed this who happened to be travelling by. Attracted to the fire and the sounds of screams, he tried to rescue as many of the children as he could. But he was seized and they tried, after trying to persuade him to join them and refusing, they held him face down in the mangled flesh and carcasses, which was now knee deep. And oh, he suffocated. God. Then one of the women dancers was seized and stripped and marched around the fire. 
She was then raped by a number of men and killed on the altar. I think this is made up, this part. And I'll tell you for why. Because they just killed their witness. (laughs) And if they were doing all this smuggling, they were bringing gold, they were stealing and bringing back vast hordes of this stuff, I think this may have been a story told to scare people away. Oh, a little bit like how the Roman centurion might have been Mm -hmm. a smuggler story. Yes. So if you've just joined us, it's safe now. Just onto the regular stuff. They have the little sort of um, dum 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 claps like, like the, the, the opposite the air raid siren that's the all clear. <laughs> okay, now this. Oh, I, I love this bit again. Do you know? I remember I said that Treasure Halt seems to be like a pivot for history. Okay, sometime later, De Corsi, that smuggler, arrived with usual smuggled goods, but in it he had a mummy in a sarcophagus that he had stolen, that was en route from Egypt, and it included with it oils and embalming ointments. These were intended for use in a black mass. The ointments were used on corpses stolen from local churchyards, embalmed and stood about the inn, as you do. Just, you know, your normal Tuesday night patrons. They didn't have Ikea. They had to, you know, think outside the box. (laughs) However, something they did not realise was that among these items was germs of the plague. Uh Uh-oh. At this time... The, pre- the plague was prevalent on the continent, but had not se- been seen in Britain for many years. Now, it had been around in the 1300s, but we're talking about 1663 here. So this is before it was in London. And it was always, it was all, always said that it, it came in via one of the ports, probably by smugglers. So this is one of the theories. As ointment was used, germs were released and the disease spread like wildfire, originating at the inn. Simon became infected. Good. Good. And he died in agony, writhing a few hundred yards from the yin. No less than he deserves. I know. Those with him fled, leaving him there. Apparently, I don't know. Again, I don't, I don't know how people know this. I have got (laughs) one thing I forgot to tell you (laughs) in the letter to Wesley in amongst the papers he was left was an account written by a lady in a psychic trance. So I think these bits in between may have been filled in by her. Oh, gosh. But apparently his life flashed before him, and in his last moments he repented and then died. He was moved into a hollow in the earth and a large stone slab placed on top. And the slab says, Here lies Simon, a monk of ill repute, but one who died in poor circumstances, being laid low with the plague itself. And on the lane up to Treasure Holt, a ghost of a monk has been seen walking the road and paths around it. No, I did. I did hear a little bit. So I was trying to avoid anything to do with Treasure Hulk because I knew you really wanted to cover it. But I did hear one thing is that he's not actually seen walking on the ground. He's seen walking a foot above the ground. Yes. Yes. I don't know why. (laughs) But it sounds like it would be absolutely terrifying to see somebody walking a foot above the ground in midair. Yeah. Especially a monk. Uh, Well, time moved on and the inn actually caught fire and nearly com- was nearly completely destroyed and the remnants and surrounding land was sold, turned into farmland. But no one actually stayed there very long because of the ghosts and the horrific things people heard. Vile smells would suddenly appear. Uh, crops failed no matter what was planted there, which is weird that it's a garden centre now, but I don't think they plant in the ground. A lane, The lane going off the Treasure Holt Lane was, it's now called Gorse Lane, but it was originally called 
goal line. <laughs> Wonder why. Maybe so we'll go. It was then turned into a private home where a lot of um, ghostly accounts were kept. So a female figure has been seen passing through the lounge, ghostly cavaliers and roundheads fighting on the lawn. A cavalier likes to stand in the lounge. Um, there's Now, this is interesting. Now, this was um, this ghost was seen before anybody really knew some of the story about Matthew. So a small man holding a box under his arm, hurrying to the fireplace with the sounds of angry mob outside. Ooh, interesting. That sounds like Matthew, doesn't it? And then on Boxing Day 1960, an odd occurrence happens. It's not very long, but it's just weird. Um, the father of the owner of the house just appeared. He hadn't died there or anything. He just appeared. It just seems to be like a magnet, the place. And music has been heard coming from the house when it's empty. One day there was a family out for a Sunday walk and they saw a lady with a long blonde hair riding a white horse towards them. They moved to allow her to pass, but on turning round to look again, found she had disappeared. Mm -hmm. There's also the tale of a highwayman who used to stay at the inn. And not he got a bit greedy, didn't just like steal from people who were passing through. He started robbing local people. Locals. Local people. The local people. They tried to appeal to him to stop, and at first he left them alone, but his greed returned and he started again. They dragged him out of the inn and hung him from a tree at the corner of the lane leading to the inn. The tree was later taken down to make way for new houses, but it was, and while the tree was still there, it was common to see the ghost of a figure hanging from the tree, swinging in the wind. In 1980, the then owner made alterations to the house, including one of the chimneys, and they found um, two swords that were from the Cromwellian era. So there's a. It sounds quite fantastical the stories, but there is some, some basis, some basis for it. But as yeah, so if you want to have a look at the most haunted episode and have a good look around it, um, it's I think it's episode eight, series one, and it's free on Prime. So, oh nice, oh. that is um, yeah, I can't believe some of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, it's an interesting one. And yeah, the whole area. Is. I mean, I. My laptop's broken, as I said, so I'm going to have to just remember this, like, on the... Actually, no, let me give it a go. Let me give it a go. Cross your fingers, everyone. Okay, the whole area around Treasure Holt has got some pretty grim stories. Um, someone was shot in the groin after a love affair in a nearby farm. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a few people going missing around the area. Uh, quite a lot of shootings. There's a haunted house near, nearby. I, I, I'm not sure if this is Treasure Holt because the way it's, it's, it's just called a haunted farmhouse, but the way it's described where it is, it, I think it possibly could be. That is the trouble with a lot of these mm. online resources is that they take little bits and pieces and then mislabel them. And then when you think you found something new, you're actually looking at something you've already researched. I mean, even if it is Treasure Holt, isn't Treasure Holt, sorry, it's still very interesting. I mean, it says... Um, there are many haunted houses in Essex, therefore it may not surprise you to hear that a certain part of Essex, which shall remain nameless, there stood and still stands an old farmhouse, which, according to the belief of the whole village, was positively haunted. I thought we were going somewhere with that. It was like, okay. Uh, so there was a lot of people who used to bet people, could they stay there overnight? And no one could. <laughs> and I might put this, I need to go through it because it's, so the copy of it on the newspaper archive is so smudged, I could hardly get anything out of it. But I got the gist of it, and it basically um, 
anybody who stayed there went mad. And there was talk of Satanists and weird people doing rituals on the property. Hmm. Halt? I don't know. So, talking of rituals, I actually visited Cockleshaw last weekend. Oh, um, you did? Because I got so into the story that I really wanted to see what this place was like. And there is a public footpath that goes through the farm that is now... Uh, the farm that belongs to the Hadleys, which is uh, part of the old abbey. And there, it was quite unusual. There's, you can obviously see which buildings are the buildings that belonged to the abbey because they look like church buildings and they are beautiful. Uh, but it is, it, there is a, an essence of strangeness there. And it, it got very strange. And I did post this on Instagram, but I didn't say where it was. So if you look on our Instagram, there is a picture of a burnt tree. And there is indeed. If you look in front of that tree, there was a beheaded blackbird. And I didn't say where this was, but this was directly outside of St. Nicholas's Chapel, the chapel which is part of the gatehouse. Um, and when I talked to my sister-in-law, she said that, I mean, she also commented that I, I'd already thought this, but it sounded a lot like CJ's story. With I was going to say, with the yeah. the entrails of the animal and... Oh my God, maybe maybe they found you, the same people. <laughs> well, what I didn't realise until after we came home is that I visited on the 20th of March, which is the Ostara Day. And many of the houses in Coggeshall were adorned with flowers. I even saw a man in a flowered bonnet when I was there, um, which seemed like it. Obviously, Ostara is a pagan uh, holiday uh, for the birth of spring. And knowing that it was Ostara Day and I had seen that. It seemed like it, it's one of these things where you start linking coincidences together and then it seems like something bigger. Mm. But I did spend a lot of that evening going, oh my God, what on earth did I stumble into? It does sound like the start of a folk horror. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> um, talking about Coggeshall folklore. Uh, so there is actually a lot of folklore for Coggeshall and some of it's quite funny. So there used to be a thing called the Coggeshall job, which was basically <laughs> a, a a stupid do- job done badly. Basically, <laughs> there were uh, traditions that the people of Coggeshall were numbskulls. <laughs> Did you hear? No. <laughs> so my sister-in-law is obviously from Coggeshall. In fact, my ancestors are from Coggeshall. Uh, which is why I, we think we have the last name Clark, as in cleric, as in monk. <laughs> oh, yeah, interesting, right? Um, so obviously, the people of Coggeshall aren't numbskulls because you're not my, numbskulls. my sister. Well, I'm not a numbskull, I know that, but my sister in law is one of the most intelligent people I know. Yeah. Um, so the Coggeshall do- uh, job was uh, around the 19th century. They apparently think it was things like. Lighting fl- fires under plum chip trees to ripen the plums. <laughs> um, something about a fisherman trying to fish the moon out of the lake, thinking it had fallen in. Because obviously it was a reflection. The town b- band apparently practiced in the Woolpack Inn. And a passerby said, oh, you sound good from outside. So the band went outside to listen. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It was all these kinds of like, I think they're more traditional jests then to say it's like a band between villages yeah um and in fact there is a rhyme so the rhyme goes brain tree for the pure 
Bocking for the poor, Coggeshall for the jeering town, and Kelvedon for the whore. Oh, yeah. So the, there obviously was quite a lot of rivalry between <laughs> the various villages at the times. Um, Coggeshall is also, and I don't believe in this, but apparently sitting on a uh, two crossed ley lines, which is why they think it is so haunted because the the monks in the abbey aren't the only haunting there. You have uh, Robin the woodcarver and the Coggeshall gang apparently haunt, uh, I think, the Woolpack as well. Um, and then you have the White Heart, which is apparently severely haunted. And I did have lunch there on the day I went to Coggeshall and it was very nice. And uh, But I didn't see any ghosts, unfortunately. Aww. So I just wanted to add that in about Coggeshall because it it's a very old town. Um, and is I just loved researching it. It was so packed full of absolutely just the weirdest stuff. I want to go. But you should have come with me when I went. <laughs> I was busy. I was I doing the witchcraft were. conference, which went well. Anybody who came, I hope you enjoyed. Ooh. Well, I've got something for you. And it's, it's not monks, but it is a listener story. Yay! <laughs> So this is from my good friend, uh, Deanna, who lives in Florida. And she's, I'll read her message just as it is. She's lovely. I love you, Deanna. So, hello, pretty lady. I was listening to February's episode and thought I'd share a bit of my story with you. Do with it what you will. And I asked her, was I okay to tell it? And she said, yeah. In 2005, we were living in McMinnville, Oregon, where my son was born. One day, I don't recall when, but I'd say in the spring, as it was still getting dark fairly early and was still chilly, we decided to go to the next town over to Newburgh to catch a couple of movies at the drive-in theatre. I've always wanted to go to one of those. Do you do them in, in Colchester sometimes? Yeah. Not the same, though, is it? Something about, it's so American, isn't it? The drive-through. It's, yeah. Drive-in, sorry. At the half-time break between movies, I was standing outside, stretching my legs and looking up at the stars. And out of nowhere, I saw what I thought originally was a stationary star start moving about the massive screen, above the massive screen. I thought, okay, a satellite, no big deal. But then it shifted its flight pattern backwards at a 135 degree angle and then changed course again at a 90 degree angle and then shot off into space out of my vision in an instant. UFO story. Yeah, it is, yeah. Do you remember last time I said, why do they know how, like, the exact measurement of... I know, I know. I'm like, oh, it went that way. I wasn't at least a bit afraid as I grew up hearing about UFO sightings in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska throughout my childhood. Many years later, in 2019, as we were moving to Florida, we stopped in Roswell, New Mexico and visited the UFO Museum. There we found a section devoted to UFO sightings in where else but? McMinnville, Oregon. Haha, <laughs> what a kick that was. And she sent me some lovely pictures. So, yeah, I, I, we love it when you share stories. Thank you, Diana. Is it Diana? Diana? Diana. Diana. Thank you so much, Diana. We really enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's me then. I'm all well, mugged out. <laughs> it's been just, I just loved researching this episode. It was just so much fun. Yeah. And I got to learn about, I mean, if they had taught me about how badly the monks behaved and about how the practice of magic was like the purview of the monastic uh, centres at the time. I probably would have listened a bit more when they were teaching about the Reformation in school. Did they do anything with it in Horrible Histories? Because that sounds perfect for that sort of thing. Mm, I'd have to look it up. 
but uh yeah i just i think it was fascinating especially now i know more about where i mean john d comes from is the fact that these texts then became public and people mm. were buying them um it's just it's fascinating and i think i'm going to de- i'm going to dive more deeply into it yeah i'm going to carry on with this cuz yeah we're going to revisit monks again cuz i earlier this morning i found something but I knew the treasure hall would take some time, so I haven't included it. I mean, Colchester has a priory and a haunting there oh. as well. Oh um, yes, there isn't that nice that that nice monk from our first episode, wasn't there? He's run into a burning building to save children. Yes. So there are nice ones. There are nice ones, but not all monks, apparently. <laughs> not all monks, crumbs. No. You got any shout outs for podcast episodes? I do, but it is not a folklore or haunting podcast this month. I got really into the Trojan Horse Affair um, over the last few weeks. Uh, the Trojan Horse Affair details uh, an incident that happened a few years ago in Birmingham where a letter was sent to the Birmingham City Council uh, apparently exposing Islamic extremists in the Birmingham schools. Oh, However, that letter is almost definitely a hoax. Hmm. Um, and the podcast goes and tries to find out who wrote this letter, but they also expose a lot of what happened in the government at the time. Uh, this letter got to Michael Gove eventually, who then put wow. in a, a, a lot of uh, Islamophobic uh, measures and it ruined a lot of people's careers. It's awful. But it was a truly fascinating podcast made from this, uh, by the same people who made uh, Serial. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really worth listening to. I've so that's that my recommend- recommendation for the month. I've got two, but they're linked because one interviewed the other last week. And one of them is, they're such sweethearts, um, Out There Paranormal with Nigel and Juliet who are based in Norwich and they are paranormal investigators, but they're, I really like their episodes because they put a little bit of their personal encounters in with local stories, but they do this wonderful soundscape and it's quite immersive and they're just really nice. I've gotten to know them quite well through the uncanny community. Oh, they're so lovely on our Twitter as well. They are, aren't they? I really like them. And they're very kindly sending us an old um, night vision camera to play with which I can't wait. And we're going up to see them soon. Um, them with Norfolk, a couple of others for tea. So I've never been to Norwich. I'm looking forward to that. Lovely place. And last week they interviewed Reverend Peter Laws, who you probably heard him on the Uncanny. He's one of the experts that go on Uncanny. There's another one, Uncanny. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Three. Yeah, Uncanny with Danny Robbins is good. I'm trying to get on series two. I'm hounding the poor man. <laughs> I saw. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I Peter does a few, and I really like the frightful one and Creepy Cove. Creepy Cove is like a sort of horror stories told as if it was a sermon in a. It reminds me a bit of Midnight Mass. Ooh, I haven't listened to that one. It's very but good. You've, de- you've just sold me on it. Yeah, well, frightful's good as well. I just re- <laughs> I recently listened to the um, episode he did on the Satanic Panic. But he has an advert halfway through. He does the adverts himself and it's for, um, adult toys. And it just, <laughs> it's just out of note, but he, he manages to link it to the story. Brilliant. There's, like, <laughs> there's another type of moaning coming from the walls that isn't, and it's, yeah. So you have to check it out. 
again, another really nice guy. Uh, uh, he's on the Uncanny community and we all have a nice chat. You were there last time. I was there last time. And he was there. Or and he was there, gone? yes. He did. Yeah. He, no, he, he popped in before the top point I, I had to go. And Lawman. They're all, it's, it's, yeah, it's a nice, I found that paranormal and, um, folklore, it's a nice gang. Lovely group of people. <laughs> what? Yeah. Is our takeaway arrived? Yes, it's all going. Our takeaway's oh. arrived. So that, I'm sorry. Gotta, gotta <laughs> go. It's not going to eat itself. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, this was a good one. And we'll definitely come back to it. Do you want to say something about Patreon? We keep teasing people with it. Oh, it's just because it's a little bit more difficult than we thought. We're trying to think of tiers and linking a PayPal account and so on and so forth. But hopefully by the time this episode comes out, it will be live and you will be able to find it through a link on our social media sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're just staring lovingly at each other now through Zoom. We shouldn't have had the wine and the beer. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've needed it. It's been a tough day. Mm. I'm going to go and have my takeaway. Okay. You go and have that. We probably should cut some of this out. (laughs) No, people need to know these things. (laughs) All right, then. It's goodbye from Elsa. And it's goodbye from Bethan. Bye. Bye.